Section twenty of London Labour and the London Poor by Henry Mayhew, Volume One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The Street Folk, Part Twenty, of the Irish Refuse Sellers. There still remains to be described one branch of the Irish street trade, which is peculiar to the class, namely the sale of refuse or such fruit and vegetables as are damaged, and suited only to the very poorest purchasers. In assorting his goods, a fruit salesman in the markets generally throws to one side the shriveled, dwarfish, or damaged fruit, called by the street traders the specks. If the supply to the markets be large, as in the pride of the season, he will put his several kinds of specks in separate baskets. At other times, all kinds are tossed together, and sometimes with an admixture of nuts and walnuts. The Irish women purchase these at a quarter, or within a quarter, of the regular price, paying from sixpence to one shilling a bushel for apples, ninepence to one shilling and sixpence for pears, one shilling and sixpence to two shillings and sixpence for plums. They are then sorted into halfpennyworths for sale on the stalls. Among the refuse is always a portion of what is called tidy fruit, and this occupies the prominent place in the halfpenny lots, for they are usually sold at a halfpenny. Sometimes, too, a salesman will throw in among the refuse a little good fruit, if he happen to have it over, either gratuitously or at the refuse price, and this, of course, is always made the most conspicuous on the stalls. Of other fruits, perhaps, only a small portion is damaged, from over-ripeness, or by the aggression of wasps and insects, the remainder being very fine, so that the retail lots are generally cheap. The sellers aim at half-profits, or cent per cent. The refuse trade in fruit, and the refuse trade is mainly confined to fruit, is principally in the hands of the Irish. The persons carrying it on are nearly all middle-aged and elderly women. I once or twice saw a delicate and pretty-looking girl sitting with the old refuse women, but I found that she was not a regular hand, and only now and then minded the stall in her mother's absence. She worked with her needle, I was told. Of the women who confine themselves to this trade, there are never less than twenty, and frequently thirty. Sometimes, when the refuse is very cheap and very abundant, as many as a hundred fruit-sellers, women and girls, will sell it in halfpennyworths, along with better articles. These women also sell refuse dry fruit, purchased in Duke's Place, but only when they cannot obtain green fruit, or cannot obtain it sufficiently. All is sold at stalls, as these dealers seem to think that, if it were hawked, the police might look too inquisitively at a barrow stocked with refuse. The refuse sellers buy at all the markets. The poorer street sellers, whose more staple trade is in oranges or nuts, are occasional dealers in it. Perhaps the regular refuse buyers are not among the very poorest class, as their sale is tolerably quick and certain, but with the usual drawbacks of wet weather. They make, I was told, from fourpence to one shilling a day the year round, or perhaps sevenpence or eightpence a day, Sunday included. They are all Roman Catholics, 
and resort to the street sale after mass they are mostly widows or women who have reached middle age unmarried some are the wives of street sellers two of their best pictures are on saffron hill and in petticoat lane it is somewhat curious to witness these women sitting in a line of five or six and notwithstanding their natural garrulity hardly exchanging a word one with another some of them derive an evident solace from deliberate puffs at a short black pipe a stout healthy-looking woman of this class said sure then sir i sat and sold my bit of fruit in this place or near it for twenty year or more as is very well known indeed is it i could make twice the money twenty years ago that i can now for the boys had the halfpennies more than he has now more's the pity the childer is my customers very few beyond such as has only a halfpenny now and then god help them they'll come a mile from any part to spend it with such as me for they know it's cheap we sell yes indeed or they'll come with a fardin either for it's a halfpenny lot we'll split for them any time the boys buys most but they're dreadful teases it's the patience of the divil must be had to deal with the likes of them they was dreadful about the pope but they've tired of it now oh no it wasn't the boys of my country that demeaned themselves that way well i make fourpence some days and sixpence some and one and sixpence some and i have made three shillings and sixpence and i have made nothing perhaps i make five shillings or six shillings a week regular but i'm established and well known you see the quantity of refuse at the metropolitan green markets varies with the different descriptions of fruit of apples it averages one twentieth and of plums and greengages one fifteenth of the entire supply with pears cherries gooseberries and currants however the damaged amounts to one twelfth while of strawberries and mulberries it reaches as high as one tenth of the aggregate quantity sent to market the irish street sellers i am informed buy full two-thirds of all the refuse the other third being purchased by the lower class of english costermongers the illegitimates as they are called we must not consider the sale of the damaged fruit so great an evil as it would at the first blush appear for it constitutes perhaps the sole luxury of poor children as well as of the poor themselves who were it not for the halfpenny and farthing lots of the refuse sellers would doubtlessly never know the taste of such things before leaving this part of the subject it may be as well to say a few words concerning the curious revelations made by the returns from billingsgate covent garden and the other london markets as to the diet of the poor in the first place then it appears that in the matter of fish herrings constitute the chief article of consumption no less than two hundred and ten million pounds weight of this fish in a fresh state and sixty million pounds in a dried state being annually eaten by the humbler classes of the metropolis and the suburbs of sprats there are three million pounds weight consumed and these with the addition of place are the staple comestibles at the dinners and suppers of the ichthyophagous part of the labouring population of london one of the reasons for this is doubtless the extraordinary cheapness of these kinds of fish the sprats are sold at a penny per pound the herrings at the same rate and the place at a fraction less perhaps 
whereas a pound of butcher's meat, even pieces or the block ornaments, as they are sometimes called, cannot be got for less than twopence halfpenny or threepence. But the relative cheapness of these two kinds of food can only be tested by the proportionate quantity of nutrition in each. According to Liebig, butcher's meat contains 26% of solid matter and 74% of water, whereas, according to Brand, fish consists of 20 parts of solid matter and 80 parts water in every hundred. Hence it would appear that butcher's meat is 5% more nutritive than fish, or, in other words, that if the two were equally cheap, the prices, according to the quantity of nutrition in each, should be for fish one penny per pound, and butcher's meat not five farthings, so that, even at twopence halfpenny the pound, meat is more than twice as dear an article of diet as fish. But it is not only on account of their cheapness that herrings and sprats are consumed in such vast quantities by the labouring people of London. Salmon, eels, herrings, pilchards and sprats, Dr. Pereira tells us, abound in oil, and oleaginous food, according to Liebig, is an element of respiration, consisting of nearly 80% charcoal, which burns away in the lungs and so contributes to the warmth of the system. Fat, indeed, may be said to act as fuel to the vital fire, and we now know, from observations made upon the average daily consumption of food by twenty-eight soldiers of the Grand Duke of Hesse-Darmstadt in barracks for a month, which is the same as eight hundred and forty men for one day, that an adult taking moderate exercise consumes in the act of respiration very nearly a pound of charcoal every day, which of course must be supplied in his food. But persons who take much exercise or labour hard, says Dr. Pereira, require more frequent and copious meals than the indolent or sedentary. In the active man the number of respirations is greater than in the inactive, and therefore a more frequent supply of food is required to furnish the increased quantity of carbon and hydrogen to be consumed in the lungs. A bird deprived of food, says Liebig, dies on the third day, while a serpent, with its sluggish respiration, can live without food three months or longer. Captain Parry, in his account of one of the polar expeditions, 1827, states that both himself and Mr. Beverley, the surgeon, were of the opinion that in order to maintain the strength of the men during their harassing journey across the ice, living constantly in the open air and exposed to the wet and cold for twelve hours a day, an addition was requisite of at least one-third to the quantity of provisions daily issued. So in the jail dietaries, the allowance to prisoners sentenced to hard labour for three months is one-third more than the scale for those sentenced to hard labour for three days, the former having 254 ounces, and the latter only 168 ounces, of solid food served out to them every week. But the hard-working poor not only require more food than the non-working rich, but it is mainly because the rich are better fed that they are more lethargic than the poor, for the greater the supply of nutriment to the body, the more inactive does the system become. From experiments made a few years ago at the zoological gardens, it was found that by feeding the animals twice instead of once in the twenty-four hours, their habits, as regards exercise, were altered, 
a fact which readily explains how the fat and overfed are always the least energetic fat being at once the cause and consequence of inaction it is well to hear an obese citizen tell a hollow-cheeked man who begs a penny of him to go and work a lazy scoundrel but physiology assures us that the fat tradesman is naturally the laziest of the two in a word he is fat because he is lazy and lazy because he is fat the industrious poor however not only require more food than the indolent rich but getting less they become more susceptible of cold and therefore more eager for all that tends to promote warmth i have often had occasion to remark the sacrifices that the ill-fed will make to have a bit of fire he who is well fed observes sir john ross resists cold better than the man who is stinted while starvation from cold follows but too soon a starvation in food this doubtlessly explains in a great measure the resisting powers of the natives of frozen climates their consumption of food being enormous and often incredible captain cochrane in his journey through russia and siberian tartary tells us that he has repeatedly seen a yakut or tongoose devour forty pounds of meat in a day and one of the yakuti he speaks of as having consumed in twenty-four hours the hind-quarter of a large ox twenty pounds of fat and a proportionate quantity of melted butter for his drink volume one page two five five much less heat is evolved physiologists tell us where there is a deficiency of food during the whole of our march says sir john franklin we experienced that no quantity of clothing could keep us warm while we fasted but on those occasions on which we were enabled to go to bed with full stomachs we passed the night in a warm and comfortable manner hence it is evident that in summer a smaller quantity of food suffices to keep up the temperature of the body i know of no experiments to show the different proportions of aliment required at different seasons of the year in winter however when a greater supply is certainly needed the labouring man unfortunately has less means of obtaining it nearly all trades slacken as the cold weather comes on and some as brick-making market-gardening building and so on then almost entirely cease so that were it not for the cheapness of fish and moreover the oleaginous quality of those kinds which are most plentiful in the winter time the metropolitan poor would be very likely to suffer that starvation from cold which in the words of sir john ross follows but too soon a starvation in food hence we can readily understand the remarks of the enthusiastic street seller sprats is a blessing to the poor the returns as to the other articles of food sold in the streets are equally curious the one million five hundred thousand pounds spent yearly in fish and the comparatively small amount expended on vegetables namely two hundred and ninety thousand pounds is a circumstance which seems to show that the labouring population of london have a greater relish for animal than vegetable diet it is quite certain says dr carpenter that the most perfect physical development and the greatest intellectual vigour are to be found among those races 
in which a mixed diet of animal and vegetable food is the prevalent habit and yet in apparent contradiction to the proposition asserted with so much confidence by dr carpenter we have the following curious fact cited by mr jacob bentley it is indeed a fact worthy of remark and one that seems never to have been noticed that throughout the whole animal creation in every country and clime of the earth the most useful animals cost nature the least waste to sustain them with food for instance all animals that work live on vegetable or fruit food and no animal that eats flesh works the all-powerful elephant and the patient untiring camel in the torrid zone the horse the ox or the donkey in the temperate and the reindeer in the frigid zone obtain all their muscular power for enduring labour from nature's simplest productions the vegetable kingdom but all the flesh-eating animals keep the rest of the animated creation in constant dread of them they seldom eat vegetable food till some other animal has eaten it first and made it into flesh their only use seems to be to destroy life their own flesh is unfit for other animals to eat having been itself made out of flesh and is most foul and offensive great strength fleetness of foot usefulness cleanliness and docility are then always characteristic of vegetable-eating animals while all the world dreads flesh-eaters of vegetables we have seen that the greatest quantity consumed by the poor consists of potatoes of which sixty million five hundred thousand pounds are annually sold in the streets but ten pounds of potatoes are only equal in nutritive power to one pound of butcher's meat which contains one-fifth more solid food than fish so that a pound of fish may be said to equal eight pounds of potatoes and thus the sixty million pounds of vegetable is dietetically equivalent to nearly seven million pounds of fish diet the cost of the potatoes at five pounds for tuppence is as we have seen one hundred thousand pounds whereas the cost of the same amount of nutritive matter in the form of fish at one penny per pound would have been only thirty thousand pounds or upwards of two-thirds less the vegetable of which there is the next greatest street sale is onions upon which ninety thousand pounds are annually expended this has been before accounted for by saying that a piece of bread and an onion are to the english labourer what bread and grapes are to the frenchman oftentimes a meal the relish for onions by the poorer classes is not difficult to explain onions are strongly stimulating substances and they owe their peculiar odour and flavour as well as their pungent and stimulating qualities to an acrid volatile oil which contains sulphur this oil becomes absorbed quickens the circulation and occasions thirst the same result takes place with the oil of fish it not only proves a stimulant to the general system but we are told that the thirst and uneasy feeling at the stomach frequently experienced after the use of the richer species of fish have led to the employment of spirit to this kind of food hence says dr pereira the vulgar proverb brandy is latin for fish moreover the two classes of food are similar in their comparative indigestibility 
for the uneducated palates of the poor not only require a more pungent kind of diet but their stronger stomachs need something that will resist the action of the gastric juice for a considerable time hence their love of shellfish the small quantity of fruit too sold to the poor is a further proof of what is here stated the amount of the street sale of this luxury is no criterion as to the quantity purchased by the london labourers for according to all accounts the fruit buyers in the streets consist mostly of clerks shopmen small tradesmen and the children of mechanics or the lower grade of middle-class people those who may be said strictly to belong to the poor namely those whose incomes are barely sufficient for their support seldom purchase fruit in the first place they have no money to spend on such a mere toothsome extravagance and secondly they require a stronger and more stimulating and staying kind of food the delights of the palate we should remember are studied only when the cravings of the stomach are satisfied so that those who have strong stomachs have necessarily dull palates and therefore prefer something that bites in the mouth to use the words of one of my informants like gin onions sprats or pickled whelks what the poor term relishes are very different things from what the rich style the delicacies of the season i have no means of ascertaining the average number of ounces of solid food consumed by the poorer class of the metropolis the whole of the fish fruit and vegetables sold to the london costermongers is not disposed of in the london streets many of the street sellers going as we have seen country excursions with their goods according to the result of the government commissioners of inquiry the labourers in the country are unable to procure for themselves and families an average allowance of more than one hundred and twenty-two ounces of solid food principally bread every week hence it has been justly said we may infer that the man consumes as his share one hundred and forty ounces one hundred and thirty-four bread and six meat the jail dietaries allow two hundred and fifty-four ounces or nearly twice as much to all prisoners who undergo continuous hard labour in the construction of these dietaries sir james graham the then secretary of state says in his letter to the chairman of quarter sessions january the twenty seventh eighteen forty three i have consulted not only the prison inspectors but medical men of the greatest eminence possessing the advantage of long experience they are proposed he adds as the minimum amount which can be safely afforded to prisoners without the risk of inflicting a punishment not contemplated by law and which it is unjust and cruel to inflict namely loss of health and strength through the inadequacy of the food supplied hence it appears not that the thief gets too much but the honest working man too little or in other words that the labourer of this country is able to procure by his industry only half the quantity of food that is considered by medical men of the greatest eminence to be the minimum amount that can be safely afforded for the support of the criminals a fact which it would be out of place to comment upon here one word concerning the incomes of the london costermongers and i have done 
it has been before shown that the gross sum of money taken yearly in the streets by the sale of fish fruit and vegetables amounts in round numbers to two million pounds a million and a half being expended in fish and a quarter of a million upon fruit and vegetables respectively in estimating the yearly receipts of the costermongers from their average gains the gross takings of the entire body were concluded to be between a million and a quarter and a million and a half sterling that is to say each one of the ten thousand street sellers of fish fruit and vegetables was supposed to clear ten shillings a week all the year through and to take fifty shillings but according to the returns furnished me by the salesmen at the several metropolitan markets the weekly takings of the ten thousand men and their families for often both wife and children sell cannot be less than four pounds per week all the year round out of which it would seem that the clear weekly gains are about fifteen shillings note some costers we have seen take pounds in a day others as the nut and orange women and children only a few shillings a week some again make cent per cent profit whilst others are obliged to sell at a loss End note. this from all i can gather as well as from a comparison of the costers style of living with other classes whose weekly income is nearly the same appears to be very close upon the truth we may then i think safely assert that the gross yearly receipts of the london costermongers are two millions of money that their clear annual gain or income is four hundred and twenty five thousand pounds and that the capital invested in their business in the form of donkey carts barrows baskets weights and stock money is twenty five thousand pounds half of this being borrowed for which they pay upwards of twenty thousand pounds interest per annum end of section twenty